let us now read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33. You can find that on page 546 of your Book of Praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. What are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 42, which also deals with our grieving as we grieve for our sins, but also the joy of salvation. Beloved congregation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this Lord's Day for this afternoon has us deal with two different responses to our wonderful salvation. It speaks about sorrow on the one hand and joy on the other hand. It has us deal with sad mourning and with joyful celebrating. A Christian is supposed to do both. We have to have a good balance between these two. For that is what repentance or conversion is all about. It is about grief and joy. Both have to be present. Some people think that we do not have to have a, that we do not have a good balance and that we as Reformed people give too much weight to the first part, to the sorrow and the grieving. And so they say that we as Reformed people are not joyful enough. We are too hung up on sin. Sin in one way or the other is always mentioned in the sermons. And that also shows in our worship. Worship services in the Reformed Church are sober affairs. There are no choirs. There are no bands in front of the church. All we have for music is an organ. And our songs also mention sin and our struggle against sin. Where's the joy? In the Reformed Church, the people in the pew do not get excited about the message and shout hallelujah or amen once in a while and clap their hands. Some people even poke fun about that and tell the story of someone who visits one of our churches and who gets so excited about, our, about the message 
that she shouts, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And then someone pokes her and says, Shh! We don't do that here. Our services are dull compared to others. It's no wonder that some young people leave for the so-called more joyful churches. It's important that we do not dismiss that criticism out of hand. We have to take our worship seriously. We also have to listen to criticism. We have to respond properly to the miracle of salvation through no merit of our own. We have to know how to put God into the picture in such a way that we honor him in the way that he requires. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. We will see that conversion requires a good balance between sorrow and joy. We will see that it requires, in the first place, deep sorrow for sin. In the second place, great joy for salvation. What is true conversion all about? How does that show? How does that show in worship? In Revelation 5, we read about heavenly worship. A wonderful picture is painted for us there. There we see God on his throne, surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angels and many living creatures, including the 24 elders who represent the church of God. They all had harps and they were all singing praises to God. When we hear a beautiful concert with professional musicians and singers, then our hearts are filled with joy and peace and well-being. It is a delight to be in the midst of such a performance. But it is nothing like what happens in heaven. It is a billion times, a billion times more wonderful than anything we can produce here on earth. And yet, note well that there was also weeping. The weeping actually preceded the singing and the joy. In a vision, the Apostle John was transported to heaven. But he was not there to sing and to experience joy and bliss in the first place. No, we read that he wept and that he wept and that he wept. Why? Well, because he thought that there was no one there to open that scroll that was lying open in the hand of God. Why was that scroll so important? What was in it? Well, that scroll describes how sin and how the sinful world is going to be dealt with. That scroll contained God's plan for all of creation. And John knew that if that scroll was not opened, that then sin could not be dealt with. And that would mean that this world would be left in sin with all its horrifying consequences. The joy comes when the Lamb, who alone is worthy to open the scroll, steps forward. He is the one who has dealt with sin in a most radical way, and now he is the only one who can do away with it forever and ever, for he is going to throw Satan 
and all his fallen angels into the fiery pit to remain there forever and ever. Now, there is joy. But the joy comes after the weeping. If you want to, if you want to worship God in the right way, then you cannot do that except if you first weep. Weep because of sin. Weep because of the effects of sin. First, you have to realize the depth of sin, the depth of your own sin. And you have to realize how deadly it is. Note well that what is described in Revelation 5 describes what is taking place in heaven right now. We are not yet in heaven, are we? We're still here on earth. Our departed loved ones in the Lord are there already. And they are experiencing nothing but joy. But we here on earth, we still live in our sins. We still live in sinful bodies, and we have sinful minds and sinful flesh. And therefore, we may not ignore sin. We may not pretend that it is not there. And we may not pretend that in our worship services either. We may not act as if we no longer live in our sins. And yet that's what we want to do. We just want to skip over it. That's what we are like. Think about it. How do you and I react when someone tells us that we have done something wrong? How do we react? Well, we're right away on the defensive. We really don't want to deal with it. We try to minimize or to excuse our behavior in every way possible. And we think that whoever is confronting us with what we have done wrong is making way too much of it. Suppose you were to do the same thing about a serious illness. Suppose the doctor were to tell you that you have cancer. Cancer, in many ways, is similar to sin. But the way we react to it is totally different. Cancer is potentially deadly. If it doesn't get treated and cut out, it will likely kill you. When you first hear the diagnosis of cancer, you're in shock. You can't believe that it is happening to you. You may wonder even if the correct diagnosis has been made. And so at first you go through a phase of discovery to learn exactly what the doctor knows and to find out what kind of cancer it is and how it must be treated. And then you go on the internet and you to try to find out everything that you can find out about your specific cancer, where exactly it is located, and what kind of cancer it is, and what kind of treatment is needed. And then, when it is a serious cancer, and potentially deadly, then you will say to the doctor that you want to get rid of it. Do whatever it takes even if it costs a great deal of money. And once the diagnosis is made, then you will focus all your energy on getting rid of that particular problem. Everything else in your life then becomes secondary. 
It now becomes your goal in life to get rid of that cancer. That's how you typically react to that kind of diagnosis. But now, what about your sin? Sin, if it's not properly treated, is also deadly. Even a lot more deadly. And you have to get rid of it. If you don't, you're not going to live. That is, you're not going to live eternally. But what do we do when we are confronted with our sin? What do you or I do when someone tells us that we have wronged him or her? Typically, you and I become defensive or we excuse the behavior. You might even blame the other person for it. It's your fault that I became angry at you because you made me angry. When a child is told by his father or mother that he or she has done something wrong, then typically they will ignore their parents. What do they know? They're not any better than I. I want to go my own way and do it my way. I don't want somebody else to run my life. Suppose you were to say that to the doctor who diagnosed your cancer. What do you know? Why don't you look at yourself? Your body is also prone to disease. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Of course it would. When you receive the diagnosis of cancer, then you had better take it seriously. And the same thing is true with regard to the diagnosis of our sin. In this church, we read the ten words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, every Sunday morning. Why? The main reason is to show us how sinful we are. The Ten Commandments are like a mirror that shows us what corrupt and disobedient people we are. Well, sure, they're also given to us to show us how we must conduct ourselves, but we have to do it in the realization that we cannot do it, that we need the Lord Jesus Christ every step of the way. Why is it that we are so reluctant to deal with our sin? That's because of our old nature. When the Catechism speaks here about our old nature, it uses a biblical term which actually refers to our flesh. Our old nature is our sinful flesh. That, of course, doesn't mean, doesn't refer to the meat that clings to our bones. But our flesh is who we are. It refers to our heart and our mind and our whole being. It refers to the whole package, to everything that makes us who we are. And it is sinful. We have invested a lot in our flesh, in our sinful nature, haven't we? That is why we also become so angry or resentful or reluctant to deal with our sin. Because when somebody points out to us our sin, and then he points to us, our sin shows us how we behave, how we do things. It shows us how we handle things at home and at work. 
And when then we are questioned, our behavior is questioned or challenged, and then we consider it a personal attack. When someone confronts us with our sin, then we take it personally, understandably so. Because that describes who I am. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we are born and conceived in sin. Sin is baked into every part of our being. Does that bother you? Does that bother you enough to make you want to escape from it? If that's the case, then that's a good thing. But don't escape from your sin by walking away from it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't think that you can think it all away. People of the world do not think about their sin. And that's why they are about to die eternally if they don't repent. But we have to be careful too. The Lord God also points out our sins to us. And he does that through the preaching and through the elders who will warn you about a particular sin if you're going in the wrong way. Don't try to brush it off. Don't walk away from it. Don't shut your ears when you hear about your sin. That's what some people do. And that's why some people also want to go and worship elsewhere. They don't want to be there where their sins are dealt with. They'd rather go to a more joyful place where sin is not mentioned. They especially don't want their own sins to be pointed out. They don't want to listen to the elders of the church when they are warned, when they are going in the wrong direction. And so they tell their parents and their friends and relatives that they're going to worship somewhere else. After all, I still love God. And to themselves they think, I'd rather worship there where I don't have to deal directly with my sin, where people don't bother me. Brothers and sisters, young people, we indeed need to escape from our sins, but not in this way. You cannot do that by walking away. You cannot do that even if you think that you have the approval of some of your friends and relatives. Sometimes parents try to protect their children by going along with their sinful escapism. The Lord God wants each and every one of us to be confronted with our sin. And he doesn't want us to make distinction between sins either. That's what the Roman Catholic Church does. It speaks about various levels of sin. And only the very serious sins are deadly sins. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Bible teaches us that all sin is deadly. We cannot skim over it. We have to realize the depth of our depravity. And that is why the catechism says that there must be a heartfelt sorrow. That means that we are not just sorry for our sins, but that we are sorry for who we are. Is that gloomy? Yes, it is. But it is necessary to be confronted with that. Even John the Apostle who was transported into heaven first had to be confronted with the possibility of a world where sin is not dealt with. And he wept and he wept and he wept. 
but now we are still on earth. And therefore, especially now, we should be weeping and mourning because of sin. Only after that can there be joy, and joy only. And therefore, joy certainly does belong to our worship. But note well that our worship right now is not the same as the worship in heaven, as we read it about it in Revelation 5. When the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not enter a man-made sanctuary, as it says in Hebrews 9, verse 24. He did not come into a sanctuary that was only a copy of the temple. No, he entered heaven itself, the real thing. And there is no sin in heaven. But there is sin here, right now. There is sin right here in this church building. And that is because of me. And that is because of you. That is because sin dwells within us, brothers and sisters. We're all sinful human beings. And it is hard to deal with sin. Especially hard to deal with other people's sin, our own sin. Oh, well. Other people. And therefore, now in our worship, we have to do so with reference and awe. For God is a consuming fire, as it says in Hebrews 12. A consuming fire because of my sins. For that reason, our church services are sober affairs. But it doesn't mean that they have to be somber affairs. For you see, the mourning about our sins go together with the joy of salvation. They are different sides of the same coin. The one has no meaning, no authenticity without the other. For what happens when you realize your sin and the deadly effect of it? Then you do not ignore it. And then you do not try to protect it. But then you want to get rid of it. And how do you get rid of it? You get rid of it by going to the doctor. You get rid of it by going to the healer, the great healer, by going to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes away all your sins. He removes its deadly effects. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is still with us, but the power of sin has been removed. It can't kill us any longer. In spite of the presence of sin, we may live. And we may live because of what Christ has done. When the doctor deals with your cancer, then he performs surgery in order to remove it. When he tells you that he has taken all your cancer away, cancer away, then you will be extremely thankful and joyful, won't you? You've been given a new lease on life. And you will thank the doctor for what he has done. You thank him for his skills and his dedication. And you will be forever grateful to him. 
But after your surgery and treatment, you often still need more treatment. Chemotherapy, radiation, and other medicine, perhaps. You need constant monitoring to make sure that all the cancer is gone and that it will not come back. It's the same thing with sin. Christ performed radical surgery on you when he nailed your sins on the cross. It was the only surgery you and I ever needed. What a reason for joy. And you may thank him for that. But does that mean that now you're done with him? No. We need to constantly go and see him. With sin, we need to be operated on all the time. We need to be reminded of our sin. And we need to rejoice when we have been declared to be healthy again. That is when the Lord God forgives us our sins. And then he removes us. Then he removes those sins from us. But those sins are only taken away if you go to him. And the only reason you would want to go to him is because you're aware of your sins. Why else would you go? Oh, sure, you have to be joyful. You have to be joyful about your salvation, about the fact that you have been given a new lease on life. But it is more than just rejoicing. In the meantime, you cannot ignore your sin. You have to realize that you sinned. And at the same time, you have to realize oh, the victory over sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot ignore the one at the expense of the other. You wouldn't do that either, would you, when you go to the doctor for a checkup after your cancer has been removed. You wouldn't just go there to rejoice and give thanks. No, you also want him to do a checkup to see if the cancer is totally gone. It is a serious matter, but also a matter of rejoicing. Those two go hand in hand. And that's also the way it is in the worship service. There has to be a good balance. Some people sit in church as if they were at a funeral service. And if this were because of their own sins, that would be one thing. But often it is because of external things. Because they're not happy about external matters. They're not happy, for example, because of the way other people behave. They're irritated because the things are not going exactly in the way that they think they should. There are certain things in the worship service they don't like, so they pout and look grouchy. What kind of message do you think that sends to others, and especially to young people? Sure, things have to be done with reference, but also with joy. And that should show in the way that we sing, in the way that we participate in the worship service. If you barely open your mouth when you are singing, and if you sit in a worship service as if you would rather be somewhere else, then you are not worshiping in the way God intends. And then you are offensive to God and to others. In Hebrews 12, we read about the time at Mount Sinai, when the Lord God was on the mountain to hand over the Ten Commandments to Moses, there was fire and darkness and gloom and storm. Why? To warn the people to stay away from that mountain because that mountain was holy and due to God's presence. 
the people needed to realize that they cannot be in the presence of God because of their sinfulness. But, says the author of the letter to the Hebrews, to the church of the New Testament, you have not now come to Mount Zion, but you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to thousands upon thousands of joyful angels in joyful assembly. Joyful. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has kept the law for you. Joyful. Because he makes us look at our sins and at the deliverance from our sins. And he makes us look at them at the same time. The one cannot be excluded from the other. You may not be full of doom and gloom if you understand what the light of Christ and the joy in his presence is all about. And it is in that mindset that you also do good works. The only good works are those good works that are done in true faith, the Catechism says. True faith acknowledges your sin and what Christ has done with your sin. Good works are done in the realization that you are incapable of doing any good works on your own and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ every step of the way. That you need him for health, that you need him for support, and that you are willing to take whatever medicine he prescribes. If you fail in that, as you will, and then you can still rest assured that God will be with you and heal you and make you complete. But you need to go to him all the time. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, celebrate your salvation. But make sure you have the right balance. Make sure that you realize your sins, while at the same time you realize the joy of the deliverance from sins. Be joyful. Be thankful for what God has done. Amen.